Welcome to part two of this week's podcast. Right now we come to one of the most often quoted uh, sections, section 25 about Emma Smith. And I'm excited, really excited to hear from Lisa because this is like your area. What do we know about Emma and her childhood and her eventually marrying Joseph? And what, what do you suppose these first few years of their marriage have been like? We'd just love to hear uh, what you know about this, Lisa, and, and how you can help us understand this. Yeah, Emma is um, Emma is someone that that I find that uh, members of the church really want to know about and and want to know more about. She was just a little bit older than Joseph. She's born in eighteen o four. Her parents are Isaac and Elizabeth Hale. She grows up in pretty comfortable circumstances. Her family's quite prosperous here in this Susquehanna Valley in the in the Harmony, Pennsylvania area. Her father made a comfortable living in shipping meat and other merchandise downriver to Philadelphia and Baltimore. I think he was known as quite a prolific hunter. Um, you know, big game was, was a way of, of uh, procuring meat at the time. They lived in a fashionable frame home that was sometimes called a mansion in the area and lived in fine circumstances. So Emma received a really good education for her time and place. She liked to ride horses. She uh, was good at canoeing, apparently. And she was very strong, very independent. She was a tall woman, I think about five foot nine, and very tall and strong and sturdy. Her family evidently was not particularly religious for some time. But she was baptized into the Congregational Church um, as a as a baby, as a child. And then there were, you know, as was the case in so many um, places in the United States in the early 19th century, there were schisms and splits and preachers who come through and religious revivals and so forth. And at one point, um, Methodists uh, circuit riders, the, the the preachers, the Methodist preachers came into the valley. And Emma, as a fairly young child, I don't I don't know the exact age, maybe about seven years old, she finds religion, so to speak. She becomes converted and she becomes a member of a class in the Methodist Episcopal Church. And so in these classes, she would have learned to read the scriptures, to receive instruction about the gospel. And then in 1812, um, so what, she would have been about eight years old, a Methodist circuit rider came through Harmony and was encouraging young people to go into the woods and pray to have spiritual experiences. And a local hunter reported that he found people um, – in the woods praying all the time <laughs> when he was out trying to trying to hunt. Um, and it, in fact, there's a story told that at one point, Emma's father found her praying for him, that she was praying for the welfare of her father's soul, and that that really impressed him and brought him to have some kind of religious faith of his own. So that's a little bit about Emma's early life. She was well-educated. She was very smart. She was very strong. She was um, an independent 
um, I was going to say independent-minded, that had a certain meaning in the 19th century, but she was an independent woman, uh, independent thinker. Um, And we kind of see that, right, in her relationship with Joseph Smith, because he comes into, um, into the area as a young man with Josiah Stowell on this expedition to try to dig up the Spanish treasure that Stoll is just convinced is is there for the finding. And uh, Joseph ends up boarding with the Hale family when he is uh, working for Stowell. Now, Isaac Hale will later write that Joseph Smith followed a business of which he could not approve. And this was one of the reasons that he says he didn't take a shine to Joseph Smith, so to speak. Um, there is some indication that maybe Hale himself had had thought about looking for that Spanish treasure. So I don't know about that. So when Emma is 21 years old, this young man named Joseph Smith comes into the neighborhood and boards with her family. He's working for Josiah Stowell, digging for the treasure. And apparently Joseph is smitten with Emma immediately. He's really just head over heels for her. And apparently she comes to to have some feelings for him as well, even though her family is not at all in favor of this relationship. Again, she comes from a respectable, prosperous family, and no doubt they felt she could have done a lot better than this kind of itinerant, you know, treasure seeker and 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 farmhand than than Joseph Smith was, who, again, also was not very well educated. Um, the words "bitterly opposed" have been used to describe how her family felt about Joseph. But, you know, it's the one of the oldest stories in the book, right? That true <laughs> love will prevail, and Stowell actually facilitates. Um, Joseph and Emma meeting, and so does Joseph Knight. He he lets um, Joseph borrow his sleigh to go and see his girl, as he puts it. Joseph and Emma uh, are courting each other, or I guess Joseph is courting Emma as best as he can. He's not in harmony anymore. I think he's up in Colesville working for uh, Joseph Knight or for Mister Stoll. I'm, I I can't remember the details in the moment, but. Emma later tells her son, she says, I was visiting at Mr. Stowell's and saw your father there. So apparently they would they would meet each other up at Josiah Stowell's place since her parents didn't agree or didn't approve. She says, I had no intention of marrying when I left home. But during my visit at Mr. Stowell's, your father visited me there. My folks were bitterly opposed to him and being importuned by your father. Now, importuned is a big word that means begged. <laughs> being begged by your father, cited by Mr. Stowell, who urged me to marry him, and preferring to marry him than to any other man I knew, I consented. We went to Squire Tarbell's and were married. So in other words, they eloped. And this is a, you know, a time-honored practice of young people who are in love and their parents don't, don't approve. <laughs> so they were married in January of 1827. And they went from there to go and live with Joseph's parents up in Manchester in the Palmyra area in New York. And that's where they were then that fall when Joseph finally receives the plates in September. And of course, it's Emma who goes with him 
on that occasion. I love this so far. It seems that Joseph Smith, in in our in my studies, he just was not complete without her. That the moment she comes into his life, he not only he not only you know becomes spiritually ready for the plates, he just kind of grows up. Uh, some of the things that Moroni has been begging him to do for the last four years. Uh, he does with Emma in his life. And the importuning part reminded me so much of my own courtship, right? <laughs> John, <laughs> the begging part, the, <laughs> the please, please. I know this might not look good to you, but it looks amazing to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, even throughout their lives, we, we have a few letters between Joseph and Emma. And more, we have more that he wrote to her than that she wrote to him. But in those letters, his expressions of love and affection and longing for Emma are consistent and, and really beautiful. He writes to her, for example, when he is in Liberty Jail, he says, if you want to know how much I want to see you. Examine your feelings, how much you want to see me. I would gladly walk from here to you, barefoot and bareheaded, to see you and think it a great pleasure and never count it toil. Mm-hmm. So throughout their throughout their marriage, they, they, they definitely loved each other. In fact, in this same interview where she talks about um, their courtship, she tells her son that... Um, that she and Joseph got along really well, that they didn't quarrel. He knew that I wished for nothing but what was right. And as he wished for nothing else, we did not disagree. He usually gave some heed to what I had to say, she says. (laughs) And it was quite a grievous thing to many that I had any influence with him. (laughs) So (laughs) they they definitely seem to have had a partnership and, and maybe even to a degree that wasn't typical for a marriage in that period where he gave heed to to, hem, to Emma's opinions and advice and and feelings in a way that maybe wasn't expected for men in a in a marriage in that time. Yeah, she um, at this time, like you said, this she is baptized in July. Is that where this revelation comes from? Is kind of post baptism? Yeah, she's actually she's baptized in June at the very end of June in and it's that occasion where someone's broken up the dam and then they have to redam the stream and then before she can be confirmed the Joseph is arrested so it's been a really intense experience for her just to get <laughs> baptized and she's still by the time they go back to harmony where this revelation comes she has not been confirmed yet and hasn't received the gift of the holy ghost and that figures into the revelation as well. And so this, um, we wish we knew more about the reasons for this revelation. Like, where did this come from? What was the, was there a question that was asked? Was there some kind of perceived need that, that led Joseph to inquire? We just don't know. We don't know what the background was for this revelation, but it is such a personal and, and beautiful, um, response by the Lord to Emma's thoughts and feelings and needs and to her potential and her gifts and her future. Yeah. And I I love this section, one, um, just because of what it teaches, and also 
that the Lord is no different with his daughters than his sons. He sounds the same. He doesn't say, well, uh, hi, Emma. Yes. Uh, thanks for doing your work. Kate. Okay, you know, is yeah. there a boy there I can talk to? Uh, he is really, I mean, this is, he has a lot in store for her and uh, he speaks the same to them. And he even says, all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. Beautiful. Yeah. And he addresses her as my daughter. Yeah. Which he'll do with Joseph, right? My son, he'll say that many times in the Revelations. You know, there may be another layer here because Emma was so estranged from her own father that mm. the Lord is is reminding her, you're my daughter. Whatever your earthly relationships are, you are mine. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking as you were, as you were giving us Emma's background, how different her life ha- would have been had she not married Joseph Smith. She, she stays on the yeah. farm. She inherits yeah. probably this this wealth mm-hmm. uh, and marries uh, well. Yeah. And here she is. I have a, a, a quote from her mother-in-law quote. I have never seen a woman in my life who would endure every species of fatigue and hardship from month to month and from year to year with that unflinching courage, zeal, and patience, which Emma has ever done. She has been tossed upon the ocean of uncertainty. She has breasted the storms of persecution and buffeted the rage of men and devils, which would have borne down almost any other woman. I mean, that is, uh, I wish my mother-in-law would say such wonderful things uh, about me. That is, that is a beautiful tribute to her. I read that too. And I thought, this is pretty cool. This is a mother-in-law uh, talking about her, her daughter-in-law. I, and I loved how uh, supportive. And I was thinking about this baptism where people come and interrupt it. I mean, it sounds like it's malicious. It's what they're trying to do. And I always have thought we've put such emphasis recently in recent years on teaching the Savior's way. And when I read the Bible, when the Savior was teaching, he had opposition there so many times. And I'm thinking, trying to have a baptism and make a beautiful memory, and what do you have there? Uh, People opposing it and getting uh, loud and obnoxious. And here's uh, Lucy saying, hey, Emma, I'm flinching doing this. I I loved that. I read that too, Hank, and I really liked that. That made me feel like there must have been a friendship there. Maybe Lisa can speak to that of Lucy and Emma. Yeah, I for sure. Uh, Lucy makes that statement in her history that she dictates in about 1845, I think, um, in the in the year or two after the death of Joseph and Hiram. And so I think we should note that by that time there is already some bitterness towards Emma. There's already some some bad feelings, and so this um, this statement that Lucy makes is meant to defend Emma, I think, within that context. Um, Lucy does live with Emma in her last years, even after the saints have gone west. And so uh, Emma takes care of Lucy in her old age, which is a pattern for Emma throughout her life. She's always taking people in. She's always taking care of people to the extent that she ever has resources to share. She's sharing them in in Kirtland, she and Elizabeth Ann Whitney put on a feast, a feast for the poor, where they made all kinds of food and invited those who 
were needy to come and partake and and have plenty to eat. So that's just one example of many that we could multiply of how Emma was such a generous. Um, and I and I think you know if if you could have talked to the saints in Nauvoo about her, that's what they would have said is that she was a a great help to Joseph and she was a great help to the saints in her unflinching, unfailing um, attempts to succor those who needed it and, and to, to provide help to those who were in need. I mean, she crosses the, the frozen, uh, the frozen river to get from Missouri back into Illinois. Uh, I've read about the, when they first settled Nauvoo and it was commerce, Illinois, and everyone got so sick with the malaria that her home basically became a hospital. She's stepping over people inside the house and outside the house. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the circumstances. And that was not at all unusual for her. What do you see, Lisa, that, that, that we could use today from the Lord's message to Emma? Well, we could go through every verse in this, in this revelation. There's something, something rich in every verse. And um, before I apply it to myself, I, I'm always... I always want to know how it, what it meant for the person who's receiving it at the time. You know, the Lord tells her, I'll preserve thy life. I mean, I, we don't know how threatened she felt at various times, but there were certain, certainly other times in her life when she felt, could have felt that her life was in danger. In fact, let me read to you from the letter that she writes to Joseph. He's in... Liberty Jail at this point, and she has had to make this flight from Missouri in the middle of winter with her four little children. She says, The walls, bars, and bolts, rolling rivers, running streams, rising hills, sinking valleys, and spreading prairies that separate us, and the cruel injustice that first cast you into prison and still holds you there, with many other considerations, places my feelings far beyond description." No one but God knows the reflections of my mind and the feelings of my heart when I left our house and home, and almost all of everything that we possessed excepting our little children, and took my journey out of the state of Missouri, leaving you shut up in that lonesome prison. But the reflection is more than human nature ought to bear. And if God does not record our sufferings and avenge our wrongs on them that are guilty, I shall be sadly mistaken." And then she concludes, I mean, that's such a powerful expression yeah, of what she's been through and of the, the, she says her feelings are beyond description. She can't even give words to what she's feeling. But then she concludes and says, I shall live and am yet willing to suffer more if it is the will of kind heaven that I should for your sake. And that actually is just, just really poignant to me because we know that she has yet to suffer a lot more. Um, even at the moment that, that that letter is written. So, I will preserve thy life, the Lord tells her. And that must have been a promise that she clung to. Um, he goes on to call her an elect lady. Now, here's another example of biblical language, right? This comes from the New Testament. And this, um, this will become important um, in Nauvoo, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. He says, murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen, for they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. So 
when we think about, you know, she's there by Joseph's side as so many of these things are happening. And yet, if we think about what has she not seen, she hasn't seen the angels. She hasn't seen the plates in the way that the that the witnesses and some of the other people did. She she definitely saw them in the sense that she talks about how they were lying on the table covered with a cloth in the same room where she was working and she rustled the edges of them and and moved them from place to place as, as she needed to in order to do her work. But she has not violated what she understands to be this commandment that they're not to be shown to anyone. And she affirms that to her son in in this interview at the end of her life that no, she never, never saw them. So there are many things that she hasn't seen at this point. And um, the Lord is telling her, I, I know that, that that may be difficult for you. The office of thy calling shall be for a comfort unto my servant Joseph with consoling words in the spirit of meekness. And then it talks about her being a scribe for him when Oliver Cowdery um, needs to go and, and do other business. And we know, of course, she had already served as a scribe um, during the translation of the Book of Mormon. There were times when she wrote for Joseph. And we do have her handwriting on some of the pages of the Bible translation, so we know that she did fulfill this this calling of being a scribe for Joseph Smith. And then it goes on to say, Thou shalt be ordained under his hand to expound scriptures and to exhort the church, according as it shall be given thee by my Spirit. For he shall lay his hands upon thee, and thou shalt receive the Holy Ghost, and thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. Okay, well, there's so much we could say here as well. Um, she had not been confirmed yet, so this seems to point to that happening. And if we look at section 27, the, the revelation that comes just a short time later, that comes in conjunction with the time when Emma was, was uh, confirmed. So we know that that did happen. But this idea that she's going to be an elect lady, that she'll be ordained to expound scriptures and exhort the church, seems to say that she's going to have a role to play as a leader, a leader in the church. And um, of course, this comes to be understood as being fulfilled in 1842 when she is called and set apart or ordained, as they used the term then, as president of this new relief society for the women that's formed in Nauvoo. This idea of expounding scriptures and exhorting the church, I mean, this idea, this word exhort had a particular meaning in the Methodist church that she came from. Exhorters were lay preachers who had a calling to to teach the the other members of the church. And there's no evidence that that this is fulfilled, that she that she takes this role at the time, at least in a public way. Um, it, it, this seems to be, and and Joseph gets up on March seventeenth, eighteen forty two, at the organization of the Relief Society, and says, 
that this is a fulfillment of this revelation to, to Sister Emma. He also says that she was ordained at the time, meaning in 1830, that, that she had previously been ordained as this um, revelation instructs. Now, whether that was something separate from her confirmation and receiving of the Holy Ghost as a member of the church, whether there was anything else particular done, we don't know at that time. We just know that Joseph says that she had been um, ordained in 1830. Um, let me just read you a, f- a few things that he says here. Uh, he reads this. It, so this is in March of 1842. Joseph stands up in front of the women and he reads this revelation, this section 25, and stated that she had been ordained to expound the scriptures to all and to teach the female part of the community and the not she alone, but others may attain to the same blessings. And he goes on to read from the second epistle of John first verse, which is where we get the term elect lady. And he reads that to show that respect was then had to the same thing and that why we, she was called an elect lady is because she was elected to preside. And in according to the, the customs and the procedures of the day at this organization meeting for the Relief Society, Elizabeth Ann Whitney had nominated Emma to be the president of the society, and the sisters had voted on that and in that sense elected her to, to be the president of the Relief Society. So... Um, again, gosh, there's so much more we could say about her leadership of the Relief Society. If if you're interested, you can go online to the Church Historians Press, or actually, it's in your Gospel Library app now. The book, The First 50 Years of Relief Society, has contains all of the minutes of the Nauvoo Relief Society. And you can read those minutes, and you can see Emma leading, you can see what she says, and and the the really um, vigorous leadership that she takes of the Relief Society in Nauvoo. So you would just go to your Gospel Library app. Um, you would hit Restoration and uh, Church History. Then there's another tab called Women's History. And under that, you, there is that book right there, The First 50 Years of Relief Society. I am. Uh, that's going to be my uh, scripture study. That's tonight. right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through and look at that. It's it's a it's a really impressive volume, and it's a very substantial volume. It's um, very much like a, a Joseph Smith Papers volume, but um, the the section introductions, the the introductions to the documents are very readable and very very helpful. And it's just that book is so amazing um, for so many reasons that go beyond Emma. So it's great for people to know that that's there. And while you're there in that women's history section, you should also look at the book called At the Pulpit, which is a collection of discourses given by Latter-day Saint women over the span of the history of the church. We do have some of Emma's words in there. We have Lucy Mack Smith and um, comes all the way up to the last decade. So that's also a really important resource that people should yeah. take a look at and use in your talks and your lessons. But Emma says at this opening meeting of the Relief Society, she says, we are going to do something extraordinary. We expect extraordinary occasions and pressing calls. Well, let's just make note of the end of verse eight, thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. I mean, that's not necessarily a commission that a woman 
in this period would expect to receive at that time. And it speaks to her abilities and to the, the role that she can play in the church. And now we get to verses 9 and 10, which are really the connection to section 24. And we talked about what Joseph and Emma had been through in terms of their poverty and reliance on other members of the church to support them. And you can see that this must be weighing heavily on Emma's mind, because the Lord tells her, Thou needest not fear, for thy husband shall support thee in the church. For unto them is his calling, that all things might be revealed unto them, whatsoever I will, according to their faith. And verily I say unto thee, that thou shalt lay aside the things of this world, and seek for the things of a better. I mean, again, Emma came from very prosperous circumstances, and she she definitely must have felt the difference in her life that it had made to marry this poor man who's a religious leader and 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 held in suspicion and and disre- you know disesteem by a lot of people and um I, she, by this point she has lost her first child she is or shortly will become pregnant with twins that she will also lose early the next year she's beginning to have a sense of hardship that her life may entail and so the Lord speaks to her fears. Don't don't be afraid. Thy husband shall support thee in the church. And when you read that together with section twenty four, with the other the other revelation, and then throughout the revelations, we have sprinklings of this idea of of the church supporting Joseph and and his family. I mean, there's no there's no question here that that the Lord is not promising her wealth. He's not promising her ease and comfort. And in fact, he says, lay aside the things of this world and seek for the things of a better. That's maybe one of the places where we all can do some soul searching about what are the things of this world? How do you lay them aside? How do we seek for something better? Can we really do that when the chips are down? Because it's hard. It's hard when you don't know, like, if your children are going to eat. It's hard when you don't know where the next pair of shoes is going to come from. And and I think Emma experienced that, and I know many of us have experienced that, and many of our members experienced that. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, that verse, that that is something I've always, it means more to me now than it than it ever has with your with your explanation, I've, I've used that verse to question myself many times, right? Am I just okay with distractions sometimes? A new, a new show on Netflix, uh, great, the, the things of this world. And the Lord's kind of saying, hey, can we put that aside for a little bit? You know, the, all these distractions. I teach uh, the New Testament at BYU, Lisa, and one thing I teach uh, every semester is the parable of the sower and the one the one soil that really probably scares me the most is the soil that has so many weeds, so many other things in it, the plant just cannot grow. 
because all these weeds are taking all the resources, all the sunlight, all the water, it's taking all the nutrients out of the soil and the plant doesn't get any. And I've wondered how many times this has been me, um, probably neither of you, but it definitely has been me where I've got so many, so much entertainment going on in my life that the things of the better world aren't getting my, aren't getting my time. Uh, and if the Lord would probably say that to me as well, why don't we lay aside the things of this world and come after what I have for you? Oh, he does say that many different times in many different ways throughout the, throughout the scriptures. I had underlined the footnote to ether 12, four right there, because here's Moroni who is all alone. Uh, I like to think of Moroni as the ultimate single adult because his greatest work was done while he was alone. And, uh, but he finds this book of ether and here's, here's a second witness for how nations fall when they reject Christ puts in the record of the Jaredites, but in ether 12, four, which is footnoted there, he says, wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. And he couldn't improve his world. It was all over for him, for Moroni, but he always had hope for a better world. And so I love the phrase here. This, this, you've got a, there's a better world coming and focus on that one. Um, in the parable of the sower, the Lord says that the weeds are the deceitfulness of riches, of riches. <laughs> the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this world. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I, you know, you have, you're right, Lisa, this is throughout the scriptures. Uh, Lehi's dream. Do you want the building or do you want the tree? You, you got to make a choice, right? Do you want the things of this world or do you want something? And the Lord even, he, 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 he flat out says it. Do you want something better? What I'm offering you is better than what the world offers you. Um, so it's got to be, it's got to be frustrating for him to think, why, why, what is so attractive about the things of this world that you would rather have that than what I'm offering you over here? I think he um, understands it actually. Yeah. And I think that's why he says this. I think yep. he knows exactly what human nature is, exactly what the human condition is. And, and to what John said, Unlike Moroni, we can make our lives better. Most of us, you know, we live in a world and in especially those of us who are blessed with the prosperity of, you know, middle class American life these days. There's, there's no limit to what we can seek for and, and obtain riches wise in this in this life. Um, I mean, you know, there's some limit, but we like to think there's not. And so we, we really can spend our lives seeking after the things of this world. And as, I mean, as long as we pay our tithing, as long as we go to church, like that's enough, right? I mean, this is, this is one of the, the difficulties is, and, and if we were talking about the law of consecration here, which we'll, you know, you'll get to in, in later sections, I think the the core question that it comes down to is how much is enough? How much is enough? And we have to ask that question of ourselves. We have, that's, that's what it comes down to is we have to ask how much is enough. And when I have sufficient for my needs, then my imperative is to give and to spend my life 
uh, seeking for the things of a better world. Yeah, that's so instructive. Um, in the book of Revelation, there's this moment where the Savior calls to the people in the great and spacious building, and he says, come out of her, my people, that you receive not of her sins and of her plagues. Come out of her. He's, he's, I just liked what you said. Throughout the scriptures, the Lord is saying, leave that, come here. Leave that. Come to me. Come yeah, this better. I offer you something better. I want to move to this um, this selection of hymns. What can you tell us about this? This is this is this is a new thing. We we have a church. We're going to need a hymn book. <laughs> uh, let me read the verse. It's verse eleven, and it shall be given thee also to make a selection of sacred hymns as it shall be given thee, which is pleasing unto me to be had in my church. And then he goes on to talk about the my soul delights in the songs of the heart. The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and I'll answer it with a blessing upon their head. I think the Lord, tell, he likes music. Um, Wherefore, lift up thy heart and rejoice and cleave unto the covenant which thou hast made. What can you tell us about Emma and the hymn book? Yeah. Well, one thing I can tell you is that singing was a big part of the Methodist tradition that she came from. And we still have in our hymn book many hymns that came out of that Methodist hymn, hymn tradition. Um, I know that My Redeemer Lives is one of them, for example. This is 1830. The It appears that the plan was to publish the hymnal along with the Book of Commandments and uh, you know, the, the early revelations that uh, William W. Phelps was working on in Jackson County in the summer of 1833 when the mob comes in and breaks up the press. And so the Book of Commandments is never finished. The hymnal is not published at that time. Emma's role, at the um, initial role in selecting hymns seems to have been just that, deciding which hymns would be included. And I don't know how much we know. I like this isn't something I'm a total expert on, but but the development of this first hymnal becomes kind of a collaborative thing between Emma and between W.W. Uh, Phelps, as he's known. He's contributing um, many hymn texts that that he's writing, which are either hymns that he's taking from the Protestant tradition and adapting with you know, Latter-day Saint content and, and lyrics, or he's writing um, original hymns. Um, so she definitely plays an important role, and is rec this is recognized as a responsibility that's given to her by revelation to select the hymns. The, the first hymnal is finally published in—the date on it is 1835— uh, it looks like the book itself didn't actually come out until 1836, but it's around the same time that the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants is published. And it's a little tiny book. If you um, ever come into the church history library, we have had one of the first hymnals in our um, display cases there in the church history library. So you can see for yourself that it's just a little tiny book that you could put in your pocket and uh, it didn't have the the music, just the lyrics to to these um, to the hymns. Um, over time, uh, there's felt like a need to have other editions of hymnals come out, and it always comes back to what's Emma's role in all of this. 
um, in about, I think it's about 1840, um, the, the brethren who are in England are wanting to publish a hymnal for the use of the saints in England. And I think it's Brigham Young that takes, takes the lead in that. And there's some back and forth about it, but there's an addition of hymns that, that bears more of the apostles' influence on it. And, and there's been some interesting study done to look at you know, what were the types of hymns that, that Emma chose and emphasized as opposed to maybe what some of the male leaders did? And Emma's uh, affinity was for hymns that expressed a personal relationship with Christ, that spoke of personal religious experience of, of, of the grace and, and um, power that came from, from these personal religious experiences. Whereas the Apostles' Hymnal, as it's called, tends to influence uh, or tends to emphasize, you know, priesthood and restoration and big doctrinal themes. And in the long run, that becomes more of the basis for our hymn book than what Emma's early hymnal was. But we do still have, and if you look at the bottom of the page, if you still use a paper hymn book, or if you're using the electronic version with the images, it does note which hymns were included in that first hymnal. And so we know that Emma did play a major role. And in fact, Lucy Smith describes Emma's work at this time as her whole heart being in it, that she was very much interested in this calling that she'd been given. And, you know, that was a significant thing for a woman to be given that kind of a responsibility in, in the early church. Wow. And I, I just, music is such an integral part of my own spirituality um, that uh, to me, I'm so glad that from the very beginning, the Lord is saying, "Yeah, I, music needs to be needs to be a part of this." Because I know for many of the students I've taught, it's the language of the spirit to them is absolutely is music, and the way it's expressed here, the language is so beautiful. My soul delighteth in the song of the heart. I mean, the Lord says, "My soul, the Lord's soul delighteth soul. Yeah. in the song of the heart." The song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and I think we've all had that experience of of singing in a prayerful way, in a way that becomes a communion and a plea to the Lord. So it's, it's expressed really beautifully there. Yeah. I think in the gospel of Mark, it says just before the savior goes to the garden of Gethsemane, uh, he and his uh, disciples, the apostles and others, they sang, uh, they sang just before that. And I've, I've always thought of that as I, you know, sing the sacrament hymn. I'm thinking this is what the Savior did before he went to Gethsemane. So, and I, I guess you can, I think most of us would just say you can feel it. You can feel the Holy Ghost, the Lord, that the love music. Um, there's a language there that sometimes can convey things that, that just words cannot uh, in music. So let's finish out this section, Lisa, um, where the Lord talks about Lift up your heart and rejoice. You're going to receive a crown of righteousness. You know, something I noticed in verse 13 that's really interesting, where it says, Cleave unto the covenants which thou hast made. As far as I can tell, this is the first time in the Revelations that that word covenants is used in this sense, that covenants that you have made a personal covenant with God. It talks about, you know, covenant of Israel and stuff, you know, earlier, but, but this is as far as I could tell, the first time that he's talking about your covenants in a personal way. And of course, 
that takes us back to Melziah 18. And Emma's just recently been baptized. You're willing to enter into a covenant with him. And so that seems to be very clearly a reference to, to her baptism and the covenant there. And perhaps, again, we don't know how how well she knew the Book of Mormon at this time, but certainly that was a, a, pas- a passage in the Book of Mormon that had stuck out to, to Joseph and Oliver as their um, figuring out what this new church is going to look like and that enters into, you know, the articles and covenants and and shaping the practice of the new church. So And and you described her life to, to us as earlier she does bear other people's burdens yeah. for the rest of her life, yeah, her husbands does. and others. Yes, she does. One of the questions I was going to ask cuz I want to I want to know if this story uh, is is really true and accurate because to me it it's kind of a window into Joseph and Emma's marriage maybe is when he is translating and says Emma does Jerusalem have a wall around it can can you shed some light on that fun story yeah that's a story she tells and she recalls that when um when he was i i i guess it's when she was serving as a scribe he stops and he just looks horrified he's been I guess, had his face in the hat looking at the stone, and he looks horrified and said, and asks Emma, did Jerusalem have walls? And of course, Emma, being well-educated in the Bible, says, yes, of course it did. And he's very relieved. Oh, good. I thought I'd been deceived there for a minute. (laughs) So she used that as an example to show how unlearned Joseph Smith was at the time that he translated the Book of Mormon and she testified, you know, strongly that he couldn't he couldn't even write a well-worded letter at the time that he's translating the Book of Mormon and she says though I was there and witnessed all of the events it is a marvelous work and a wonder to me the the coming forth of the Book of Mormon so she bears a really strong testimony of the the miracle that that was and so yeah that story is part of her illustration of how Joseph Smith was not capable of doing what you know he was not capable of writing this book of his own initiative I kind of just love the window into the marriage of yeah. of Emma's edu- more educated than Joseph is and he can rely on her. And I love that he could immediately stop Emma. Does Jerusalem have a wall around it? And that she would... It's one of the reasons Joseph has so much respect for her. Yes. And so much reliance on her is that she fills in some gaps that he has, especially at first. Yeah. And I, I love that uh, that aspect of their marriage. My, my wife just creamed me in the, in the ACT test. So, <laughs> so I have to rely on her sometimes like this. <laughs> you know, yeah. Lisa, as you were, as you were talking about Emma's final testimony to her son, I had this thought and you, you both can correct me, but if, if someone, a critic of, of Joseph Smith in the church is willing to say that the Book of Mormon is a fraud, then what does that say? What What are you saying about the character of, of Emma Smith, that she was willing on her deathbed to lie to her own children? Are you willing to go there? If you're, if you're willing to say, hey, I don't believe the Book of Mormon, I think it's a fraud, then you, you, you also are saying that Emma Smith has the character, has no character whatsoever, right? That on her deathbed, she's willing to lie to her own children. I just, I'm, I would never be willing to go there. 
I would never be willing to impugn her like that or anyone else involved, but her especially. You know, I, I have had students ask me in the past because they're kind of aware of of Emma's later life and her disaffiliation with the church that comes to Utah. And that final testimony that she gives is given to her son, Joseph Smith III, who is the leader of the RLDS church at the time. And so we have to understand that to some extent, her lot is in with the RLDS church at that point. And so when she's saying, testifying about the church, she's seeing that in a different way than what we would see it Mm, if we read that testimony out of context. But I don't think that that's a deal breaker. I mean, because... I mean, I think as members of of the church today, we can still rely on that testimony of of Emma's because she's speaking primarily of the events of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And so whatever her later relationship with the church is, is not a... Up, you know, that's not up for grabs at the time in the late 1820s. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our interview with Casey, but he says the same thing. He says... Her, David Whitmer, there's no yeah. reason to say, well, they're, you know, they're telling us how miraculous it was. Why would we, why would we refuse yeah. to hear them on this? Yeah. And in some ways, the fact that they didn't stay with what we think of as the mainstream church adds credence to that because, um, especially in the case of a David Whitmer, you know, whose disaffection from Joseph Smith is so, is so keen. He, he had every reason in the world to, to repudiate that. And yet he didn't. And likewise with Emma, she just doesn't qualify her testimony. Dr. Lisa Olson-Tate, that is your official title. Um, You are a historian and a scholar. You know as much about this history as anyone else. Certainly, you know as much about this history as a critic of the church. Um, And yet here you are, faithful, believing. (laughs) You know the details of where Joseph and Emma are according to the month and year. We want to talk to Lisa. What has the restoration done for Lisa as a as a mother, as a wife, and also as a historian and a scholar? When people ask me why I do history, what is it that, that drew me to doing history? My answer is people. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in the human condition and the human experience over time how we're the same, how things change, how people have experienced life, and how much we share with the people who have come before us in this world. And for me, my bedrock perspective on history then is that it's about people. And by definition, that means people are human. They're they have weakness. They, they're frail. They're imperfect. I mean, what we call history, they called life. You know, they were Im- embedded and enmeshed in the same kind of uncertainties and, and messiness and difficulties that we, that we deal with all the time. To me, that perspective makes the hand of the Lord more evident when it is there. Because we see the experiences, the events, the things that that happen that are beyond human capability, that are beyond just what human beings can do and experience on a day-to-day basis. And in my own life, I 
have had those experiences too. And they usually come in very quiet ways. They're usually very much bound up in the circumstances and the complexities of my life as it unfolds from minute to minute. And recognizing that about Joseph Smith, about Emma, about the early saints, I think is important and I think is helpful in recognizing how God really works in the world. And it's through the weak and the simple, as he says, it's through small and simple things, it's through the still small voice. Um, And then there are the moments when it's a little more than that. And we recognize those because they do lift us out of the everyday circumstances of our lives. And we can see that that's how it's been for people in the past as well. That having been said, it's utterly impossible for us to ever go back and completely reconstruct the past. I mean, I can't go back and reconstruct yesterday minute by minute, right? Because we don't have, what would you base that on? We can only reconstruct history based on the sources that we have. And that is subject to so many variables of what got written down and what got saved and and was it accessible and do we have it now? And, and then can we make sense out of it in, given that our world is so different than their world? So I just find that my testimony is... I mean, my testimony is based on the witness of the Spirit. My testimony is based on seeking and immersing myself in the Word and having experiences with the Lord that are very um, powerful and very real, just like these revelations that we've been talking about today were for the people who received them. My confidence in these people and their experiences is strong based on the the records that we have and the experiences that they've recorded for us. And I think we can learn a great deal from those and we can be inspired by them. But no matter how deeply we study, we can't prove anything one way or another through history. And you also can't disprove anything through history. The, the faith and testimony that comes through the Holy Spirit and only through the Holy Spirit. But by reading about the experiences of other people, we can share in their experiences, and we can have our own faith strengthened, and we can have our own experiences become more meaningful as we see how we're sharing in that human experience over time. Wow. I I love that. The idea that these here are ordinary people having extraordinary experiences. And for, um, for me, the, this podcast, I feel like a very ordinary person having an extraordinary experience this year. John, don't you feel the same way? Yeah. My, uh, my doctrine and covenants will never be the same. And every week I just look forward to taking more notes and my nodding muscles are or getting sore. I'm like, oh, yeah. I, <laughs> Thank I ran you so out of, much. I ran out of room on my section 25 margins as oh, I was man. as I was yeah. writing. 
so just learned so much. Dr. Tate, Lisa Olson Tate, thank you so much for being here uh, and giving us your time and giving our listeners uh, so much information and so much knowledge in making this these sections now so rich. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been fun. We want to thank all of our listeners, of course, uh, for sticking with us. We want to thank our producer, Shannon Sorensen. Uh, we want to thank our production crew, David Perry and Lisa Spice. And as I said now, we are on social media. So we want to thank our social media expert, Jamie Nilsson. Thank you so much to our entire team. And we'll see you on the next episode of Follow Hitler.